We have a God who does miracles. You know that? I saw today Dylan Larson's visiting with us. Dylan wouldn't want me to do this, but I'm sorry. I saw Dylan, and he was white as a sheet because he'd lost almost all his blood. Fifty years ago, he would have died. He walked in. He visited us today. God does such good things. He heals us of our diseases. He, he does things. They're just miracles and fantastic. And he did one particular miracle. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, right? The miracles God has done. And then the one we really sing about that doesn't just save our physical bodies, but lets us go to heaven. Let's us have a relationship with him. Gives us everything. Romans has been about that. That's what we've been studying. We've been studying the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. And we're in it again today. But it's not just about the gospel at the beginning or in the first few chapters. It's about the gospel all the way through. The good news of Jesus Christ and how it impacts our lives. So we looked last week actually at chapter 9. This is what we looked at, that righteousness is by faith, because the question came up, what about Israel? And so we saw Paul writing that God has a plan, and it's an unstoppable plan, and it's the plan of salvation and redemption in Jesus Christ by faith in him alone. Israel, if they stand in the way of God's plan, they're going to get run over. Amazing. Our God, we can trust him. He's strong. He's able. And so then we come now to chapter 10 today, looking at this plan of righteousness by faith and thinking about there just being one way. We should listen to our Savior. Oh, we need to. There's just one way. Even for Israel. So it's going to help us today as we see, as Paul lays out, the stumbling block that Jesus is for Israel, that we understand another way that's been tried, that we see that because we we tend towards it too, you and I. It's as if, think this image through as we start, it's as if we're locked away in prison. You and I and a bunch of us. And we look there around. And we look, how are we going to get out of this place? They've thrown away the key, we think. So there we are looking to get out. And we see, we look around for the weakest points. We look for the bars that we can shake maybe at the window. And maybe we can undo the little mortar around them and pull out and escape the window. We get our plastic spoon out and we start saying, I'm going to dig a tunnel. In the Count of Monte Cristo, somebody's done that. You start digging and 20 years later, maybe I can dig out of my way out of this tunnel. But we look around us and at the back of this prison room that we're in, there's a door. Well, surely they wouldn't leave the door unlocked. So we don't even try it. And we do that as we live our Christian lives. We're looking so strongly and so hard to get places by ways that you can't get places instead of going by the door. And Jesus himself called himself the door, John 10, of the sheep. Anybody else who comes in by, except by the door is a thief and a robber. You can't get in by other ways. You can't get out by other ways. It's Jesus Christ alone. And unfortunately, as Paul lays out for us today, for Israel, it had been that way. So we want to let Israel's stumbling inform our life as we trust in the word of faith. 
Don't be those guys trying to dig a tunnel with a plastic spoon. It's not going to work. Not even a metal one. Okay, let's look at our text. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. He starts with another way. Another way of establishing righteousness. Brothers, verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for Israel, is that they may be saved. He said that last week too. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Okay, so he starts off again the same way he did in chapter 9. Chapter 9 said, oh, believe me, it's really true. I wish I was going to hell so that Israel, who's experienced the favor of God, might go to heaven. They've experienced such love. Oh, they should be responding to it. And here he says again, oh, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And now he says, because they've got a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Zeal. Normally I think of zeal as a very good thing. Oh, that we might be committed. We might be wholehearted. We might be so committed to something that nothing will stop us as we go for it, as we get in there. I don't know how many times I've heard in my life, and maybe you have too, I just want to do this for God's glory. Zealous for God's glory. Always makes me step back and be a little careful. What is God's glory? It's God's glory, that big task that you want to do, or maybe God's glory is just you sitting there praying, or maybe God's glory, you determining for God what his glory is can be a very, very difficult thing. And here he actually says, zeal, zealous for God, but not according to knowledge. If they, if they were rightly oriented maybe, but they're trying to shake at the bars of the cell, there's, there's somehow they're, they're working really hard and not going the right way. What is that zeal according to knowledge? You need to follow Paul's diagnosis of the problem because it's hugely prevalent and it's not about becoming a Jew. Right? It's actually this idea. Follow me. It's the idea that you establish your own righteousness. It's the idea that you, with a little help from the big guy, get better yourself. That you yourself get improved, that it's about you becoming acceptable to God by making sure you stay in this little zone. We've talked through this before, but Paul won't let it go. I'm ready to move on. I'm saying, Paul, I want to move on. I want to talk about other things. Paul's like, no, see it again. Look, Israel, this seems very reasonable to me. I hope it seems reasonable to you that that would be how God would work. I, I need to get better. If, if I look in the mirror and I see myself, I, I know I need to get better. So how do I get better? Well, I know how I get better. I, I focus in on it and I, and I work on it. If I want to lose weight, I do sit-ups and push-ups. I at least follow the Atkins diet. That makes me better. And so there's lots of examples in the world. And, and even more for Israel. Israel, right? Think about this for a minute. Zeal. He's saying, they've got zeal for God. When he says God, he doesn't mean an idol. He means the one true God. He means the one true God. Zeal for your house is eating me up. Old Testament saints said that. 
So God gave true commands to Israel, and he gave them true commands so that they might keep them and live. It's not rocket science, is it? Keep them and live. How do I know that this is what they were doing? They were doing the law for righteousness because of verse 4, right? Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He said, no, Christ is the end of that. Working to get better and be acceptable to God via the law, via the rules, via the Old Testament five books even we read this morning. That's the end of that. The goal, the culmination, the finish. There's a variety of ways, just like in English, you can use end. But that's what it is. So what they were doing was continuing in the law. Their end or goal or culmination was to make themselves acceptable to God by what they do. I do this, so do you. What makes me good? I feel great when I do something good. I did it. I prayed four times today. I fasted for three straight days. I feel so good about myself. Look at this, I'm shrinking. But but don't I need to do that? Isn't it evidence of a heart change to keep the law? Which is why this statement is so troubling. In fact, it's the hinge of this little section. Verse 4, look at it one more time with me. It says, for Christ is the end of the law into righteousness to everyone who believes. It's really an into there. So Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the finish of the law. Christ is the culmination, the goal of the law into righteousness for everyone who believes. Everyone. Not just the Jews. So we see that, that, that there's a troubling thing going on here because the Jews had a path, and the path was keep the law. We, we read it in Deuteronomy 30. Keep the law and you will live. So it very clearly sets up this model that the world works by. When you do this, you get this. When you do this, you get this. This is what, if you get better at it, if you do it very well, you get more blessing and, and goodness. That seems like a path that makes sense to me, and yet somehow it's being called here another way. Are there two ways? Or just one? So let's look at two paths for a minute. Let's look at it, because he does. That's what he does. That's what Paul works through for us. He looks at two paths. Here's the one, right? Look at look here again. Why, why is Christ the end of the law is the question. If there's only one way, is how do you get built up in righteousness? Verse 5. For Moses writes, look, this should, this should open your eyes a little bit. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Wait. Wait, there is no righteousness except righteousness in Christ. No, the righteousness based on the law. There is such a thing as righteousness based on the law. There is such a thing as righteousness based on the law that Moses wrote about. In fact, he's quoting there from Leviticus 18, verse 5, and says that very thing, that those, a person who does the commandment, shall live by them. What does he mean? He says, if, you, if you're under that system and that's what you're doing, you will be judged on that system, on how you do. You need to do it and then you will live. It, the, the blessing for keeping the law is there. It's not wrong to tell someone, what I really want to do is keep the law to get to God, to say, have at it. Good luck. They'll need luck. 
Because the ordinance of God is that no one gets there that way. That's a statement of fact. We've already been over that in Romans chapter 3. But that's there, right? There's a setup being done that Paul does. Now there's two paths. There's this in verse 5. The righteousness that is based on the law. Contrasted to verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith. Well, there's another way. There's another path. The righteousness based on faith. So there's our, there's our, there's our ways. There's way one from Leviticus 18.5. If you do the commandments, you'll live by them. You order your life and thinking on whether you're doing or not, and then the law will condemn you or confirm you. And that we've been through this already. The law uniformly condemns us because what's required is perfection. Perfectness. But that way, this one way, it appears to our eyes to combine the evidence of the world, which says that when you practice it, something you get better, with the help of God, because he gives the gracious law like he did to Israel, right? Israel would be the perfect person to say, it's it's really God and me, because God gave me the gracious law, and indeed they would say even that he helps me keep it. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't make me like that guy over there but that you've helped me to keep your perfect law, that I might be righteous. Right? That seems good and and even rational to me. You might not see that last part yet. But it appeals to me because it doesn't make me seem so weak. The responsibility is on me as it rightly should be. I can improve my standing if I want to. Do you want to be holier and you want to be higher in God's kingdom? Get to work. Send your treasure on ahead. You'll be great. It's all about you. It seems very fair. And this also means I can establish and judge others. Hey, you know, I'm counting seats. Who came to church today and didn't watch the Seahawks? Treasure in heaven. (laughs) Those other guys, they get nothing. I can go there very easily. But I know from this passage, it can't be right. Because it's contrasted to this righteousness based on faith. Look at verse 6. The end of it again. Look, very interesting, in fact, what he says here. Okay, so there's this righteousness by faith. But the righteousness based on faith, this other path, says this. Verse 6. The middle part says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. Okay, pause there for a minute with me. Wait a minute. But the righteousness that is based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. What? I want him to give me a clean view of what this second path is. We've kind of seen it already in, in Romans, but what exactly is he talking about here? What he's doing is he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the law. We read it this morning already, but let's look again. It should be very, very interesting to you. Because I'm tempted to think just like the Israelites would think. Turn back with me. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. Or listen along. 
chapter 30, verse 11. Compare and contrast with me what Paul does. It's amazing. For this commandment that I commanded you today, this is Moses in Deuteronomy, this commandment that I commanded you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who should ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say we will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. That ought to make your jaw drop. Wow, I haven't heard. No one's ever explained this passage. Yeah, because it's people think, oh, this is difficult. I'll just skip on to the next part. And then they miss what Paul is doing with the Old Testament. There's so many of us who feel like what we really need to do is get saved so that we can go to the Old Testament. You may not say that in so many words, but that's what you think. So what is Paul's thinking with Deuteronomy chapter 30? Quoting it here. Okay, first, Paul knows people are sinners. He said it, right, in Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He knows it from the Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46 says, all men sin. When he begins this little statement, this little quotation that he does, look, look first, look up. Again, look. But what does it say, verse 8? Actually, I want 6. Do not say in your heart. Do not say in your heart is another phrase. They think he's taken it from Deuteronomy chapter 9, where he says the same phrase. In the, in the Greek version, the Septuagint, says, do not say in your heart, in Deuteronomy 9, and what he says there is, do not say in your heart, you're getting this land because you're righteous. That's the Old Testament to Israel. Do not think I'm giving this to you because of your righteousness. So right away, the context, the feeling as he runs in is, don't say it's because of my righteousness the Lord has got us to possess this land, just grace. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 30, if you read the whole chapter, we won't take the time. But if you read the whole chapter, he starts the first 10 verses, Moses does, with saying, you won't obey the law of God until you get a new heart. That new heart's coming in the new covenant. Very interesting. And then he quotes, but this Paul does. Deuteronomy 30 verses 11 to 14, and see that every time he refers to the commandments being easy and doing doing them, being near, he substitutes in Jesus Christ. This is important for you to see. Right? I wish I could, we could, we could compare them word for word, but you can go back and forth and look. There in verse 7, Actually, start in verse 6. The righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? The Old Testament continues there to say, To bring the commandment near and make it easy and doable. Don't say in your heart, Who's made this commandment for you to do down so you can do it? And then Paul turns and says, This is, that is, to bring Jesus Christ down. See, Moses is saying, if you just read it through, he's saying, hey, this command, it's not hard for you to do. You can do it. Paul reads that in the New Testament and says, wait a minute. I know that no one actually keeps the commands. How could God say they were easy? 
How could God say it's easy to keep the Ten Commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Is that easy? It's impossible. What's going on? Here's what's going on, Paul says. It's about Jesus. It's amazing. He puts Christ where the commandment is. This is shocking. Look at verse 7. Paul goes on. Neither does the righteousness from faith say, who will descend into the abyss? And Deuteronomy 30 goes on, essentially saying to bring the commandment near and to make the commandment, the law, easy and doable. But Paul says that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Again, he, where the commandment is, he, he takes out the commandment and he puts in Jesus. Wow! Here's the point. There's nothing Israel did to make this happen. There's nothing Israel did for the gracious giving of the law. There is nothing Israel did, even here, for our obedience, people who believe in Christ now. The earthly life of Christ and the risen life of Christ is put in place of the obedience to the commandments. This is the key to justification. This is what he's been talking about in Romans. This is the thing that says, where do you get your righteousness? It is not by the easiness and the nearness of the commandments. It's by the completeness of the commandments in Jesus Christ. So that's the point of Romans 10.4. That's what he's supporting here. These verses say Christ is the goal of the law. Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the culmination of the law for, for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, it's all about Jesus Christ actually doing the law perfectly and then giving that righteousness, that obedience, that standing to you. It was like that in Romans 3. And Paul says that was even the point of Romans 30. Wow. So Paul sees in this Old Testament text a pointer to the day when Jesus would be our righteousness. Jesus would be our sanctification. Moses says we've got to have a perfect righteousness, but doable. And then Paul has seen that none do it. In the power of the Holy Spirit. Speaking the truth. Okay, so what, what is that then for us? So here we who believe, wow, this is fantastic news. We can respond with joy. Look at verse 8. What does this righteousness from faith say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. See, Moses talked about the word being near you too, but he, he didn't see it as clearly as Paul is now laying out for us. The way out of the condition we're in is through the door. Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ for righteousness. Therefore, verse 9, famous verse. We've memorized it together, you and I. We've done it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This isn't about lordship salvation. Not as it's commonly thought anyway. You need to have Jesus as Lord. Guess what? He is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the Lord of lords. He's the King of kings. You need to say, yes, my only hope is in my Lord. 
My only hope for righteousness is in Jesus. That's him being your Lord. Not, I gotta go back and get these law, this law done in order that Jesus will accept me. That's where my heart goes. And Paul is saying, no, these are two separate paths. One's over here, Israel's still on it, and then there's us. The Old Testament and the New Testament testify together. Israel has no excuse. And here's the point, he keeps going, right? The Lord bestows riches on all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is that amazing? Verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. He's quoting Joel 2. Old Testament. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called on the name of the Lord today? I hope you have. That's what you need to do. You need to call on the name of the Lord. By knowledge, understanding that Jesus Christ is your offer of salvation, that by putting your faith in him, you have eternal life. That here's here's the ticket forever, that all of my righteousness will come through the finished work of Jesus Christ and is testified to not just by his death, but by his resurrection. That's what he's saying. I put in there a quote from Martin Luther in, in his treatise on leadership. God is not hostile to sinners, but only to unbelievers. That's in a certain context. The context is we, we all sin. God's not saying, make yourself sinless and then I'll accept you by your hard work. God's saying, believe in Jesus and I will take away your sin. All of it. Forever. It's too unbelievable. It's amazing. What's the real crux? What's the real middle piece? You know, there's one divide here of these two ways. And I'm tempted to say it's law, but it's not law. Not what he's putting forth. There's a crux. There's this piece because he sets up a chain now is what he does. And he says, okay, so what, what are the signposts that are, that are, what's that divide that I need to be so certain of in my heart where I'm headed and what I'm doing? What is that? Look at verse 14. But how are they to call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of him, those who preach the good news. Okay, so the transitions to look at, what's this main point? What's the point at which there's really a problem? This impacts our whole life. We have to live here. What's the crux? I know what I'm tempted, and you've heard this verse before. If you've ever heard these verses before, I know how you've heard them, because I've heard them as much as you, maybe. Man, get out there and preach, because people have to hear. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, and, and therefore you need to get out there and make sure you're talking and telling people, because that's how they know, and that's a true statement that, that you need to preach, but that's not Paul's point in the slightest. He's not there. Understand in context what he's doing. He's saying there's a chain here. The word of God has to come. People have to proclaim it. People have to hear it. People have to believe it. 
And people have to call on God to be saved. And you know what he just finished saying? Everyone who calls on God will be saved. So all these people in this cell, if they call on God, they'll be saved. Call on God, please. What's Israel's problem? Man, maybe those guys, they haven't heard. They need more people. Let's all go to Israel. They got to know. Is that what he's doing? Is that the problem? Is that the crux? There's not enough proclaiming going on. So we look and we see. First you see in his quotation from Isaiah there that he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Yes, that's a beautiful thing to proclaim the good news of God. And then in verse 16 he says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Obeying the gospel. What's that? Maybe they didn't hear. For Isaiah says, Lord, who believed what he has heard from us. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. They haven't all believed in Jesus. That's what obeying the gospel is. The Obeying the gospel is saying, yes, I'm going to go by the door. My life is going to be about putting my faith in Jesus forever. That's my only hope for righteousness forever. My only hope is Jesus. And so there I am putting my faith in Jesus because he's the way, the truth, and the life. That's obeying the gospel. And they haven't. Why haven't they? Well, because no one's told them. No. Right? Very specifically no in the text. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? That's Isaiah the prophet saying, I'm speaking the gospel and they won't listen. Right? Then then he goes back to what the chain is. Faith, belief comes from hearing, remember. And hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, verse 18, look, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. Oh, wait, I thought this was about getting me off my seat so I could go share because it's so important that I proclaim. No, it's about the problem of Israel. It's about our main fork. Have they not heard? Indeed, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the end of the earth. What words? The word of the gospel. Oh, so it's not, it's not a hearing problem. Maybe it's an understanding problem. Maybe they didn't understand. But I ask, verse 19, did Israel not understand? Oh, hey, he's thinking like me. Maybe that's the problem. So, and says, and he's quoting the Old Testament throughout here. He says, first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah, verse 20, is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Wow. Get his point. What is he doing? He's pushing back. He's pushing back. The, it's the, the crux of the matter is not, have you heard? The crux of the matter is not, is not, do you understand? You do. We could go back to Romans 1. Everybody's without excuse. The crux of the matter is, do you believe? It's right there. That's our path. Those are the two paths. The one path says, I trust in Jesus Christ. The other one says, I do not 
I can trust in myself. I can trust in myself plus God helping me get better. I can trust in some other God. Hey, but it's not trusting in Jesus Christ. You can even be Israel and know the true God. This is radical. I hope you see how radical this is. The breakdown is not the word of Christ. The breakdown is not the preaching. The breakdown is not the hearing. The breakdown is the faith they don't believe. Belief in Jesus Christ is the crux. This has huge implications for us as we end here. Huge implications for us because we want to be on that path. I put a quote from a, a book we've just read. I really like it. It's by Dane Ortland. He says this, Moderate grace would have said, I will meet you halfway. I'll grant you a ladder, and I'll give you strength to climb it. I'll help you become what you were meant to be. Sounds like the army. Be all that you should be. It'll help you become. Defiant grace says, I'll become what you were meant to be. See the difference? One is me-focused. I need to become Superman. I need to train and get better. I need to be the man. The other says, we know the man, Jesus Christ. And my faith is in him. My trust is in him that he's working in me. My trust always says, eyes that I see are through the eyes of faith in Jesus. And that's where I go. And that's where Paul is pushing us today. This offer, it's real. Anyone who calls on the Lord gets grace, but you got to go through the door. It's amazing. It's true. The pathway that seems most reasonable to me, halfway grace. God tells me what to do graciously, helps me do it graciously, and then I get to work and work on my goodness so that when I get to the Lord, I can say, look, Lord, I'm a good guy. That's wrong. The path that's true is the one that says, I just trust Jesus. I still struggle with sin. Sure, but it's not really about that, is it? Because I've been promised that there will be no more sin in heaven. I've been promised that Jesus Christ died for my sin. Everything I need for life and godliness, Second Peter says, is through the Holy Spirit as he reminds me of these great and precious promises of Jesus Christ. So it's really important that we don't back-end our salvation with wrong-headed thinking about the law. It's not there. So we stopped today, but as we end, I want to do two things. One is I want to say, well, how does this practically work out? Because this is a lot of theology for us today. And Israel, and I'm not Israel, and I'm, I, I, why why is this rational? So I want to do one thing that's a flag for us and one thing that's a practical piece. Here's the flag. How do I tell how I'm doing? He said, I think I've got it, Dax. I try and put my faith in Jesus. But how do I know that I actually have, am, am moving that way and I'm doing okay and, and there I am. What, what am I supposed to do? And one of the things that's really been helpful for me is to examine my heart in the area of jealousy. How do you respond when somebody else gets something undeserved that you would kind of like? That's pretty good because what that's doing is driving us in these two paths. One is it's about me and me accomplishing things. So God should bless me if I do good things. So if I do all my good things in a row, but then God blesses someone else. How does that make you feel? 
What happens? Jesus talked about that in Matthew 20. It's a parable of the wages where Jesus went early in the morning and got workers and then asked them to work and they went to labor. And then Jesus went at midday and got more. And then with 20 minutes left, he got some more people and got them out there working. And then he started giving out wages and he gave out a day to, day's wages to the first guys who sweated. He probably came in scratches and sweating. Then the next guy, he gave a full day's wages. And the guys worked 20 minutes. He gave a full day's wages. So the guys at the beginning said, no way, that's not fair. Well, but Jesus told them what they get, and they got it. No, but that's not fair. I want more. Because you gave them more, now you got to give me more. That's not fair. I want what they have. I want more stuff. I want, yeah. He condemned that. That's this idea that we don't understand that all of our riches are in Jesus. And so as the Lord graciously gives as he'd like to give, that we get our hearts set on, no, no, no. If God gave him that, then he needs to give me this. So there's a flag. And then how does this work out? Just for a second. We need to be done, I know. But how does it work out? And so I, one example. So and I, so you have a spouse. This is an example. It's not me. It's not my spouse, please. Danny, sorry. Okay, so I have a spouse, and my spouse sins. I sin, maybe, if that's me, but it's not me. So this is spouse. Your spouse is in sin. And so if you're thinking along the path that Israel would think here, not Israel per se, but this thinking that we have about law, then you're disappointed when people sin because they ought to be better. They ought to work harder than they're working. And so I'm right to be disappointed with them when they fail. And so what do I do with that? Will I nag them or I complain or worse, I, I ditch them. Because they're failing and it's on them that they fail. Versus if I'm over here in grace, about Jesus' righteousness, not theirs, I'm not surprised by sin. So I'm transparent. I don't try and hide it away like I'm embarrassed if I gotta call somebody on something. Because sin is part of our, our, our living. We fall and then we help each other up, but our faith is in Jesus. So there's not defensiveness there. I can help someone when they're failing, and I can keep my eyes on a perfect Jesus and trust that his purposes will be met, even in my spouse who's sinning. It's just a different mindset, a different way to approach an actual problem. And they show two paths. The path that I call you to this morning from our text is that you might put all your faith in Jesus Christ for your righteousness before God forever. Let's pray.